the idea of creating a diversified portfolio and saving in these assets is, is it's nuts. It's like us today saying, I'm going to save my wealth in bronze and wooden ships and sheep. Cause it's like, that's what's valuable 2000 years ago. It's like, that's what people hundred years from now are going to think of us today. Like how on earth, why on earth were they saving money in houses? Houses only go down in price and someone will have to explain, well, one period of time, people thought houses prices went up. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week I have on Luke Broyles. Luke, welcome. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's an honor to be here. I, I'm very happy to be doing this. Awesome. Yeah, you posted a, a very like fascinating thread about basically Bitcoin technology and like human productivity over the long run. I'm curious, what made you write this thread to begin with? Yeah, so I didn't... I first heard of Bitcoin in 2017 uh, when I was beginning learning about finances and, and everything. I was getting into the finance space, and I, I did pretty well uh, at first. I, you know, was doing all right. But you know, of course, like pretty much everyone, I my first assumption was that Bitcoin was at worst a scam, and at best a high risk speculation. And I'm not smart enough to know which it is, so I'm just gonna not touch it at all. So I first heard it in 2017, and in the bull market of that cycle. And I really didn't pay much attention until 2018, 2019. And I knew a couple people in my, my personal circle of acquaintances and friends that I knew were quite smart. And I knew that these people, eventually I, come, I came to know that these people had a very high Bitcoin allocation and they were relatively high net worth people. And I realized for myself, I thought, okay, I think these people are very smart and I know they have and irresponsibly long uh, Bitcoin allocation. And so I realized, okay, these people are either wrong and I'm incorrect in my assessment of them and they're actually dumb, or there's something about this Bitcoin thing that I don't know yet that I should probably learn about. So anyway, in late 2019, early 2020, that's when I started learning about it. And then of course, March 2020 happened and that really kicked my learning into overdrive. And so since then, pretty much, I've been trying to educate people, uh, mostly my friends and family and high net worth people in my circle, I, I'm in real estate as well. And so, you know, real estate people sometimes are interested in learning about Bitcoin, typically they're not. But anyway, I've been trying to talk to people. I've given a couple of lectures, presentations, a lot of calls just like this um, online or on the phone. And the vast majority of people just aren't interested, which I understand. Um, you know, I don't think it's because they're unintelligent. I think it's just because it's very difficult to explain um, an abstract concept like Bitcoin. And so eventually I... I was continuing to hone in my presentation and eventually it kept coming back to technology. It's like before we can even talk about Bitcoin, everyone wants to ask about Bitcoin and mining, can people ban it, supply, all these specific technical questions. And I kept coming back to technology that when I see people understand it, it's because they first understood technology and Bitcoin's role in that. And then I come to learn that, you know, Henry Ford and Nikola Tesla and other people, other technologists and engineers, um, of the early and especially towards the later 20th century, um, understood Bitcoin even before there was the internet or the computer. Then, then that really put in that argument. And so, so I made a few slides, um, you know, well, many slides <laughs> uh, of this idea, giving this presentation. And I had a Twitter account, and I thought, you know, what the heck? I should just post some of these slides on there. So I took a, a couple dozen of them or whatever and posted them on Twitter. And I thought, okay, maybe this will get 100 views or whatever. And Lo and behold, completely to my surprise, it got like 100 over, I, I think it's 200,000 views now, <laughs> um, just like that. And 
and then today I posted my second thread, and it's getting even more. So anyway, it's it's really nice to be on Twitter and talk to people like you, Joe, that like get it, and like finally there's a little bit of validation that okay, I'm not entirely insane. So that's a that's a long story short of how I got there. I, I pretty much just threw this together. Um, it it's not something, and it's not an idea that's been new to me. It's something that I've worked on for a long period of time. It's just something that I decided to post online for the first time. Yeah, totally. And yeah, your Twitter account has definitely blown up since you posted the first thread. But I definitely want to dive into the first thread for those that may not have seen it or want to learn at least more about it if they did quickly read over it. Um, Because the thread kind of starts out with like, okay, the world is changing really fast. Um, Can you kind of describe like why you started the thread this this way and like like how fast is the world changing? Yeah, well, the, the way I put it is that I find it better to orange pill people as, as in educate them about Bitcoin when it's a surprise <laughs> that comes halfway through. And so it's like, okay, you know, Bitcoin's a new thing. Human brains, we like to reject things that are inherently new. So, okay, don't talk about that first. Talk about something that's undeniable to people. And something that is undeniable to basically everyone with a pair of eyes is that technology is changing faster and faster. You know, if you, if you lived through the last 10, 20 years, even someone my age, you know, like when I was in elementary school, our family didn't have internet, which I know most people my age probably did, but for, like I remember when we didn't have internet, and now we do, and now we're calling on this online. It's just in my own lifetime, even though I'm 23 years old, the amount of change, you know, the, the thought hit me one day that I have less in common with my six year old self or my five year old self, technologically speaking, than that self did with my parents when they were that age. It, in many ways, you know, I spend almost all my day online. I do lots of work online. You know, I mean, the, the whole way we operate our society has changed. And so then it's like, okay, what if I push this idea further? And eventually, you know, when listening to very smart folks like Jeff Booth and other technologists and engineers, <laughs> you know, it, it becomes self-evident to to anyone that we have less in common with the future than we do with the past. You know, and, and that's really where the thread. Um, starts out there. You know, the the exact thing I said in the thread was that we have less in common with the Roman citizen of 2,000 years ago than with somebody just 100 years from today. You know, two millennia versus one century, even though that doesn't feel right, you know, the person in the future, you know, our great-great-grandchildren or great-grandchildren or children, you know, whatever generation that is, they have less in common with us than we do with our great-great-great-great-great-grandfather or grandmother in, in the Roman period. And, and another reason that I thought of that, too, is that I, I was on a, um, a tour of Israel recently, and we saw a lot of Roman ruins and everything like that, and that, that's just another thing that really solidified it in my mind. It's like I have so little in common with the average Roman citizen, and yet I do my research and I, do, and I study you know, the technologies of tomorrow, you know, artificial intelligence, humanoid robots, um, life extension, you know, all, all these things that are more or less just around the corner, even if they're decades away, they're just around the corner. They're going to fundamentally change everything, and none of us are ready. And so that's where I started the thread, just talking about how setting the premise. Before we talk about Bitcoin, just set the premise and that you have to, you have to disassociate yourself with your worldview because it's going to go away. One way or another, something you take for granted, and probably almost everything you take for granted about the modern world is going to be completely gone in 100 years. And maybe not even that long, you know. I mean, take you know, take the 20th century for example. The 20th century was much slower than we are today in terms of technological change, and that degree of change happened multiple times in the 20th century. You know, in, in um, what year was it? I think it was 18 1869, I believe, was when we finished the Transcontinental Railroad in the U.S. And 1969 was when we landed on the moon. So it's like, okay, that's 100 years. I mean, to go from the railroad 
the transcontinental orbit not being completed to landing on the moon in 100 years, it's like that's multiple iterations of complete societal change. Um, and in the, in the same regard, that's happening today, and that's going to happen in the future, and it's only going to get faster. And I got a lot of – almost all the feedback I got on my Twitter thread was positive, but a lot of people comment like, oh, that's impossible. It's not going to happen, blah, 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 blah. You're insane. And I understand that, but the reality is, Joe, the way I put it to people is that if you don't think this is true, your base case is hoping for, like, complete apocalypse. You know, I mean, technology's only gotten faster and faster for thousands of years and to assume that trend reverses or stops, it's like, okay, now your base case scenario is that something so dramatic has happened that all the momentum we gain has stopped. So it's like, okay, what, like nuclear war? Is that what, is that what you expect? You know, is, is mass starvation, you know, so, like some catastrophe? And perhaps that's possible. I, I put that in the thread too. Like what if something horrible happens and, you know, kills a lot of people? But, you know, the reality is like our base case expectation, our optimistic expectation is that our entire worldview is almost dead. And people think that's a pessimistic worldview, and I think it's the only optimistic worldview that makes any sense, is that we're in what tomorrow will consider the ancient world, and we're at the tail end of that. So that's how I start my thread, talking about technology and how much we have in common with the past and how little we have in common with the future. Yeah, definitely. I think another like interesting point uh, kind of showing how fast the world has changed is similar to landing on the moon but before that just the wright brothers going up into the air the first time i think that was like 60 years some 70 years apart maybe which is just even less than 100 years so it's just kind of mind-blowing how fast things are changing you had like three like kind of interesting examples like in near the first part of your thread like they were talking about like life expectancy education and like energy of how you know people and like society is is different from like now and and 2,000 years ago, you know, can you like expand on some other examples that you may potentially have included in the thread? Yeah, sure. So some specific examples, the one I care about the most, you know, people think, you know, Bitcoin is all about getting rich and sure, that's a component of it, but really I care about Bitcoin. I talk about Bitcoin because I genuinely believe it's going to save millions of lives and because it's, this is about helping those in the third world. And with the first, the first example I gave in, in the thread, I think, was about poverty. You know, in ancient Rome, 95, 90% of the world population were in extreme poverty. And as recent as the 1920s, that number was still at 80%. Now it's more like 10%, thank God. And hopefully in the future, it's going to be even lower. But the point there being that we went from 90, 95% to 80% in 2,000 years, and that we've gone all the way down to 10% in a century. Like, where are we going to be a century from now? Like, dramatically lower. And, you know, some other examples being that, you know, childbirth in both 1923 and the year 23, childbirth was incredibly deadly in both of these eras. Uh, you know, I have great grandparents and great great grandparents where that passed away because of childbirth. Uh, malaria uh, was a real threat. Um, you know, infant mortality is down dramatically and therefore life expectancy is up dramatically. And then as far as technology goes, you know, we have the Internet now, like I mentioned earlier, uh, we are in instant communication with each other. You know, I, I give probably a dozen examples in, in the thread of how life has changed more in the last hundred years than the previous uh, 1900 years. Um, another one I didn't include the thread, which I think is always worth mentioning, is that, you know, we didn't really know galaxies existed until 1923. And now we have evidence, not just evidence, but like actual documentation of gravitational waves and black holes. It's like. Okay. <laughs> so it's not just technology. It's not just life expectancy. It's in every facet of life. You know, we have, you know, on this computer here that we're both using, you know, we have access to literally every book that's ever been written by man. And 100 years ago, probably we wouldn't be reading, or there's at least a high chance that we wouldn't uh, be reading or completely literate. So 
that, that those are some of the examples I went through, and I gave uh, charts and examples um, of the kinds of things that have changed the last hundred years. Yeah, totally. I think that was well said. Um, you also made before we I brought up that question or that topic. You're talking about how you know there could be this scenario where a lot of things go wrong and like technology growth does yeah. actually like slows or like we regress like a total nuclear war. But also you got to remember the point that. I mean, the 20th century was the year of t total war. We had World War One and World War Two, and we still had tremendous technology growth. So, even with things, many things potentially going wrong, you, you're, this is kind of the base case scenario. That, that's that's exactly it, Joe. You know, we had World War One. You know, what was it? 18 million people died. I mean, the Spanish flu, another 20, 30 million, whatever it was, and then 80 million World War Two. I mean, it was especially the first half and the Great Depression. Oh, can't forget that. You know. I mean, there was a lot of war uh, last century, and it was awful. And thankfully, thankfully, you know, um, you know, the end of World War II and the bringing of the nuclear bomb and all that changed the incentive structure of war, so we haven't had a war since then. But, yeah, it's like you have to ask the question. We're already going faster in the 20th century. What if we don't have a major crisis like those? You know, what if instead of three or, or four, I guess, if you include the Depression, we only have one? I mean, you know, bad things are going to happen, but I think – to be an optimist, you have to admit that the best case scenario is that our entire worldview is going to be technologically irrelevant in 30 years, and that worldview is going to be irrelevant 20 years after that, and then relevant again in 10 years, and then it's, we're only getting faster. And I go into that um, in my Twitter thread. I, I chart out clearly global energy consumption and usage, and we're just entering a parabolic spike, and that parabolic spike has been continuing for thousands of years. We're just There's nothing new about the modern area. We're just continuing the trend. So, yeah, great point. Totally. Um yeah, in the thread you, you and on this call, you you mentioned you know we're kind of in, if you think about it, an ancient world today, and I quote where humans trade economic value by bartering between political currency units and saving wealth in assets and goods. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so I, I was in I was in Israel recently, like I mentioned, and one of the things that continued to hit me was just going to all these ruins and everything, just how valuable these rocks. And this wood, you know, all these little trinkets today that are like just absurdly cheap. You know, it's like a small wooden boat, you know, 2000 years ago in the Roman era, you know, that was incredibly valuable. That was like an entire town's income, that one little wooden boat for fishing. And so, you know, if you go back in time, and another example I like is that the British pound, I think you could at one point have traded 11 cows for one British pound. Like, like we're talking about 800 years ago, but point, point being that in the past, these things that today are extremely cheap were extremely expensive and took a lot of effort for them to maintain and for them to transact because there was a lack of prosperity. And in the same way today, we have less prosperity than the future does. The future has more technology. They have more innovation. They have more humans. They have more goods and services. They have more of everything in the future, again, assuming we're optimists here. And so the, the only logical assumption to make or the only conclusion that I can come to is that the things are extremely valuable today like what are today our oxen and our uh, little wooden boats in the future, it's like that won't make any sense. You know, I mean, you know, take realtors or, or lawyers or, you know, brokers and all these things. And I say this, you know, biased. I'm, I'm about to become a real estate broker myself. But, you know, it's like th thinking ahead towards the future. It's like one has to conclude like, okay, real estate has been coming down for thousands of years, which I know is controversial for people to hear. But it's true. You know, a house today is far more prosperous than a billionaire's house 100 years ago. You know, it might be smaller, but you've got so much, so many more luxuries that they didn't have. Prices of real estate and prices of prosperity are coming down continually. 
And so the only logical conclusion to come to is that today what are extremely expensive and time-consuming transactions for us today will become a, a smaller deal to the, to the average person. You know, right now I'm in the process of buying another piece of real estate, and it's just, an, it's just a headache. You have to deal with so many people. You have, you have the buyer, the seller, the lawyer, the you know, realtors and brokers, like I mentioned. You have all the inspectors. and you, know, you have all these people involved with the transaction. And in the future, when said asset is cheaper, there's less incentive to do your diligence on that because it's just the incentive's not as great. You know, when there's an, a when there's a hundred times the number of wooden boats, you know, the, the incentive to you know protect that wooden ship with your town's entire resources, you know, just goes away. And in the same way, I believe we're in an ancient world where we save wealth in our houses and our bonds and our stocks, where we have all these brokers and managers, you know, trying to move our money around to create this perfect portfolio, which really what they're trying to do is they're trying to create the perfect money. That's, that's what they're trying to do. And in the future world, that, make, that makes no sense. Like, why would you hire people and spend all this money on these folks to transact goods and services and assets that make, that make no sense? And not only do those jobs make no sense, but the assets make no sense. You know, like I said, why on earth would one own a security, like a, a stock in a company or, or a debt instrument of a sovereign nation that's insolvent <laughs> and going to only become more insolvent? When in the future, you could just buy a portion of the global capital stock of the human race. It's far more decentralized. It's far lower risk. There, there's no cash flows you have to worry about. There's no marketing plan. You know, it's in the future, it's lower risk than being exposed to these more centralized and higher risk and probably lower return um, investment vehicles. And so not only are these jobs more or less irrelevant, but. Yeah, that was a. A very interesting frame of reference that I think is is probably true for sure on a long enough time horizon. And you're basically hinting at Bitcoin. I don't think you mentioned the word Bitcoin right there, but you basically were hinting at Bitcoin. And so like, yes. what exactly <laughs> yes. is Bitcoin and how does that fit into this idea that, hey, maybe we won't save in assets and goods or assets in like real estate or whatever you think of as assets today, maybe we'll save in something like Bitcoin. So what is Bitcoin and like, how does that fit into kind of what you just kind of said? Yeah, yeah, I like the point. You know, I got a lot of comments on my thread that I'm so surprised you're a Bitcoiner because it wasn't until halfway through that I mentioned it. So yeah, um, yeah, so so what is Bitcoin? The, the way I like to, to frame it is that it's, it's not a new idea. A lot of people think it's a new idea. It's actually, I mean, at least in my view, it's a very old idea. You know, again, Nikola Tesla predicted it in 1900, Henry Ford in uh, 1921, Hayek in uh, 84, I think, and then Friedman in 99. You know, there are like a lot of people that predicted it, you know, for decades, over the course of decades, for most of the 20th century. So it's really not a new idea at all. Now, the technicals of how it works, that's all new technology, more or less. Um, but the, the prediction of it was, is actually very old. And so the way I put it to people to where I think is the most accurate, and I, I hate sometimes to say it because it's skipping a lot of nuance here, but basically the way I think of it is that Tesla and Ford and these other geniuses understood that we're in a current world and we have a future world. You know, we're in the industrial era and we're entering the information era. And so they understood, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century that we are creating a global network of energy and we're able to... Tr uh, transition natural wealth into just global units of energy um, that we can then, you know, everyone can use it for every appliance. You know, it's a global network of energy. And once we do that, on top of that, we have to build some sort of network. If we're going to get to that future world, that information age, we have to build some sort of device or some sort of machine or, or system that can, that can turn that energy into information. And then we need a third system on top of that 
that can then that can then transfer that information into something that can be intangible, something that can be transferred across space and time with extremely low friction. And then if you're going to do that, you have an energy layer, you have an informational layer, you have a communication layer, and then fourth and finally, you have to have a monetary layer. You know, that that future world needs some sort of value. And the only thing that makes sense in that world is not an analog bar of gold or silver or some other commodity, but it's some sort of intangible, what today we call digital uh, form of energy that is finite in supply and can be instantly transferred. And so that's how they predicted so many things of the 20th and early 21st century. You know, it, it's completely, it's completely mind-boggling to me how they will do it. Because for those that don't quite follow yet, what I'm saying is that first system is the electric grid. So we convert natural wealth into energy, electricity. We convert solar, uh, coal, natural gas. We burn things. We we mine things. We harvest things from the natural world, and we turn that into electricity. And we have the global electric electric grid. That's that's the energy layer. And then on top of that, well, what's something that converts electricity into information? Well, it's computers. You know, the, the, the computer, 1948, that, that is the manifestation of that prediction, that we will find a way to, tra- to turn energy into information, and that's the computer. And then the third level, the third layer on top of that, being the, the communications layer, which obviously is the Internet. You know, what does the Internet do? I mean, like us talking right now, we're able to talk pretty much in real time. We have, ex- we have instant communication with extremely low friction costs across both space and time. It's instantaneous and it's extremely low brute force physical cost to do this. It's, it's free to, to, to billions of people. <laughs> the Internet's free. It's extremely low cost. And so then finally, and, and that was in you know, the 1980s or whatever year it was, 19, early 1990s. And then finally in 2009, we have uh, Bitcoin, what today we call Bitcoin. And the name doesn't matter. Um, there, there's just one network, but the, the name's irrelevant. The Bitcoin is just the name that it was decided to be called. It, it's the network that matters, and the network is that algorithm that, tra- that transfers that information into a finite amount of the given ledger. And so basically what is Bitcoin? Well, basically Bitcoin is an algorithm that using the communications network of the Internet converts a natural brute force physical cost into energy through computers into that ledger. And so when you hear people like Sailor or whoever say that Bitcoin's digital energy, that's pretty much that's pretty much what it is. Bitcoin is more or less the result of a long process of energy consolidating in a more and more dense form to get to a final state. And so basically it's a uh, power projection network that happens to double as really good money. And one way I, I like to put it is, one metaphor I like to give is like that of the locomotive. Um, you know, before the locomotive, the idea of a mass transit system was completely, nobody knew what that meant. Like, what, what do you mean mass transit? You know, it doesn't make sense. You you have horse or no horse. It's like, okay, (laughs) but the locomotive comes along and it's the world's first mass transit system. It's the first time in human history that humans can traverse over long distances over land. Um, you know, but basically anyone can do it. You don't have to be physically fit and have a horse and have all these, um, things. You can just get on a train and do it, just pay your um, ticket to get on the train. So it's a mass transit system. Likewise, it's a weapon system. You know, one of the reasons why the locomotive exploded so quickly all of a sudden is because it was a matter of national security to, uh, especially nations in Europe. Um, You know, if you have a railway system and your enemy doesn't, it's like, who cares how many guns you have? You're you're, you're like, it's over. You need it. Um, you, you can't survive without it. And, and so that's another reason. That's another part component of the network 
And then a third factor that I, I like about the locomotive was that it was massive, massively important for uh, the corporate world. You know, if your company um, can exchange goods and, and everything on, on a train and your competitor can't, I mean, guess who's going out of business? So, you know, I, I, I fear that looking back on history, we also think technology is just one thing. It's like, oh, there's this thing and this thing. It's like, no, one thing could be multiple monumental technological shifts all at once, you know, locomotive being a complete societal change for the average person, a complete eradication of every business model before, and a matter of national security. And I say that to emphasize uh, for people listening today that in the same way, Bitcoin is multiple things wrapped into one. It is a money for human, for average people like you and me. It is a, it is a weapon system. It's a power projection uh, tool that governments inevitably are going to adopt. We're already seeing that. I, I love uh, Jason Lowry's um, commentary and, and posts, and I, I think he's absolutely right. Uh, what timeline? Who knows? I think probably 2030s, but eventually governments are going to have to recognize it. And, and that's a major component that Tesla predicted in 1900, that eventually governments would find a way to create entirely new principle, as he described it, where they could fight without bloodshed um, instantly 24-7 in some sort of intangible thing. I mean, more or less, that's what he predicted. Um, Henry Ford predicted much more the monetary components of Bitcoin, and Tesla predicted much more the weapons implications of Bitcoin. But um, one way or another, a very long answer short, is what is Bitcoin? Well, Bitcoin is basically the next layer on top of the previous layers we've built over the last century, century and a half um, of the information age. And either Bitcoin is what we think it is, or there's something better, or this whole idea is wrong and the, you know, and the information age is just whatever. But it's like, okay, it's been 14 years. Bitcoin has over 99% hash dominance and everything. It's like, yes, there's lots of other crypto things, and perhaps some of them are interesting tech companies. Most of them aren't. <laughs> um, but it's, it's like, okay, th there isn't a second best. There's just Bitcoin. I mean, what's your other option? You're going to assume that Bitcoin's going to zero because you're going to assume that the former world has to continue in the future when we know that it can't. So anyway, I'm getting off the rails here <laughs> to go back to the locomotive. But um, yeah, that's the basic idea of what it is and why it's important. Yeah, no, I think that was a great explanation of like what Bitcoin is and, and why it is important. Um, I kind of want to tie it back into what we were talking about earlier about how humans, you know, kind of today save and physical assets and physical goods, whereas in the future, they might just save in something like Bitcoin. Can you tie those two concepts together and like, why, why would that happen? Like, why would we not save, you know, in physical assets and why would we start saving in, in something like Bitcoin? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, I think to push you a little further, Joe, I think it's not going to be like Bitcoin. I think it's going to be Bitcoin. I don't think there's going to be a future version of Bitcoin. Like to emphasize for those, perhaps the listening that are new, it's like, it's Bitcoin. <laughs> either it's Bitcoin, either Bitcoin is going to come for everything or it's going to zero. Uh, there's no middle ground. There's no dual Bitcoin world. It's like, no, no, no. It's one or the other. You can think it's the other. That's fine. But do you think it's something in the middle? It's like, that's, um, that's uh, absurd in my opinion. Um, so why, why would someone save in Bitcoin? Well, a, a metaphor I'd like to use uh, or a question I like to ask before I get to the metaphor is what is the most valuable thing in your life? Because people often say, oh, gold's more valuable, real estate's tangible, blah, 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 whatever. Okay, forget it all. What's the most valuable th thing, commodity in your life? And the, ob the obvious answer, even though it's not intuitive, is oxygen. You know, real estate's great, stocks are great, all this is great, but without oxygen, you're dead in five minutes. You know, water's great, shelter's great, heat is great, you need all, th all those things to live, sure, but 
I mean, physiologically speaking, a lack of oxygen uh, causes the fastest fear response in your in your brain. It's like scientifically speaking, oxygen is the most essential thing for a human being. Okay, when was the last time you paid for oxygen? Okay, it's never. I have used oxygen twenty four seven for twenty three years, and I am I don't owe anyone any money for all the oxygen I've used. You know, it, it's free. Now, okay, why is it that the most valuable thing that humans use all day, every day, even when they sleep, is free. Well, it's because the supply is infinite, at least on a human scale. There's an endless amount of oxygen and the specific combination of air that we breathe. You know, there's an infinite amount. Now, okay, what about something like the Mona Lisa? You know, I've seen the Mona Lisa, and it's funny how there are all these people taking pictures of it. You know, it's like people flock to it. Okay, do you need the Mona Lisa to live? No. Okay, if I went into the Louvre and I burnt the Mona Lisa up, which I'm not going to do, but if I did... Most people would not care. You, your life would go on just fine. Yeah, sure, it might be a very sad article, and a lot of people would be upset and all that. But nobody's going to die. Everyone's going to be fine. You know, the, I mean, I, and I love art and everything, but you know, frankly speaking, oxygen is much more essential to human survival than the Mona Lisa. Even though there's one Mona Lisa and infinite amount of oxygen, oxygen is far more valuable. So the question is, what is the price of the Mona Lisa in terms of oxygen? Well, the price of the Mona Lisa, you know, if, say, our global currency were, you know, cubic inches or cubic centimeters of, of oxygen, well, the price of the Mona Lisa would continue to trend towards infinity forever. It, it doesn't matter how valuable the oxygen is in and of itself. If there's an infinite supply, its price in terms of Mona Lisa trends continually towards zero indefinitely. You know, you make a price between Mona Lisa and oxygen, it's just going to keep going down because there's just more oxygen, infinite amount of oxygen. One, one Mona Lisa, and every copy of Mona Lisa only magnifies the original beauty and uniqueness of the first Mona Lisa. And so what the heck am I talking about here? Well, I'm talking about assets. The whole reason people hire financial advisors, the whole reason we have this system where we buy bonds and stocks and real estate, the vast majority of retirees, at least in Europe and the U.S. where I am, the vast majority of retirees, they save in those three things, real estate, typically their own personal residence, stocks and bonds to some diversification or, or, or something like that. Well, the whole reason you save in those assets is, is because they're more scarce than cash. You know, I mean, think about it. You know, I already said earlier that real estate is continuing to go down in price. And again, I say that as someone that owns real estate, but it, it's objectively true. You know, real estate is becoming more and more affordable to more and more people continuously forever. And to assume otherwise is to assume something horrible has happened and hundreds of millions or billions of people are going to go homeless. So if we assume into the future that real estate's only going to become more and more abundant and the supply is only going to go up exponentially as technology becomes exponentially better and exponentially faster, well, what's the only reason to own real estate then? Well, the only reason to own real estate is because it's more scarce than the cash that we denominate that real estate in. So for example, it's it's like comparing oxygen versus helium or oxygen versus some other element. You know, when you have two open systems and you're and you're trying to price between them, you get price volatility between infinity and zero. But as soon as you bring in a closed system to that set of open systems, all the open systems have to keep declining to zero forever against the closed system. You know, it so again, if you have two open systems like say real estate or cash, or stocks versus gold, or A versus B, you know, whatever. You know, and this is what people get paid big bucks to do. They get paid to model out and formulas and predict, you know, what's the price of this in terms of that going to do over the next, you know, people all the time. They price the stock market in terms of gold, or they price houses in terms of cash, or, you know, whatever they do. 
that's basically the world we lived in for the, the entirety of the human species until 2009 uh, when Bitcoin came along. And now, for the first time, we have a finite system. That's what Ford and Tesla and all these geniuses predicted, that eventually we're going to find a way to build a bridge between the analog and the digital world that can create finite scarcity that also has a brute force physical cost to verify that scarcity. And in doing that, it's the first closed system that we've ever created. There's nothing ever like it before. And so for the first time, in a world of oxygen and nitrogen and all these infinite supplies of everything, we have a Mona Lisa. And it doesn't matter how essential those elements are to our survival, that finite closed system inherently has to go up in relative value to everything else forever. And so that, that's the metaphor I like to give. So looking forward, what does that mean for the average person? Well, that means that right now we're in the ancient world still where we have a series of open systems. You know, we save money and we get rich and, you know, real estate and stocks and all these cute little diversified portfolios. But I mean, inevitably, if this thing survives, if it survives, I, I don't care what your portfolio is, like anything that isn't Bitcoin is going to continue to go down forever in, in relative terms uh, compared to Bitcoin. Its monetary premium is going to get sucked out really quickly here in the next decade or two. And then the the marginal cost will just continue to go down forever. So it's um, anyway, why would someone own Bitcoin in the future and not these other assets? It's like, well, because artificial intelligence, there's no... There's no end to how much intelligence or brain power humanity can create, whether human or comp or computers and artificial. You know, there's no limit to how much music we can produce. There's no limit to how many movies we can make. You know, I'm a filmmaker myself. I've seen it myself, just how the movie industry has exploded in supply of TV shows and films. Anyone's seen that. Anyone that has a subscription plan has seen that. Um, you know, there's there's no limit to abundance. We can make more houses. We can make more gold. You know, I get that from gold bugs a lot. It's like, what about gold? It's like, okay, well, here's a question. You know, we're maybe half a century, a century out from asteroid mining and doing things off planet. I know that sounds absurd today, but, you know, just go with me. It's like, okay, if that's the case, one asteroid, it's like, boom, your entire supply of metals has just been diluted by a factor of 10. It's like, okay, what now? You know, and that's, and that's what Ford and Tesla understood. They understood eventually as technology gets better as a function of time, we will only be able to create more and more infinite supply of everything else. And eventually to combat that, we have to make some sort of immutable ledger with complete finite scarcity. It's a closed system that we can store our wealth and our time in because you won't be able to store wealth in houses anymore. You won't be able to store wealth in fiat currencies. You won't be able to store wealth in stocks. You can only store it in the global money stock of the world, which is a finite ledger. And Bitcoin, it has 99% dominance of being that ledger. And it's the only immutable one. Um, you know, people think, oh, Luke, you're a big pro Bitcoiner because you can get rich. It's like, yeah, sure. Okay. But there's a huge risk in not owning Bitcoin because if Bitcoin's correct, everything that has a price is going to zero against the price, which is Bitcoin. Everything that has a zero is going to... Anyway, I, I made my point, but all I have to say is that in, in, in the future, there's no point in holding anything else because the supply in comparison to Bitcoin is infinite. Yeah, totally. I think that was very well said. I think the argument against real estate makes a lot of sense and it's kind of similar to the argument with like the the ships, you know, thousands of years ago with the ability, especially now with technology moving faster and faster and ever, it gets more clear over, I guess, a shorter amount of time that the thing that we can produce at an infinite amount forever is probably going to get devalued versus the thing that we can put infinite energy into and infinite resources, yet we can only produce a finite amount of it. I think that was definitely well said. Um, and can I have I, one more I, quick point to that? Yeah, definitely. Real quick. Yeah, one thing... 
I have to say that, and people say, oh, that's decades away. That's a century away. It's like, okay, fine. Okay, here's the question, though. If everyone understands it's going to happen, what does everyone do? They front run it. If you know your bank is going to be insolvent, as an example, in, say, five years' time, the only logical thing is to sell everything now because eventually everyone else is going to figure it out and everyone's going to front run that. It's just continuously being pushed forward as more and more people understand it. It's like, I'm not waiting for the supply of gold or all these other assets to be diluted. I've already sold it all. You know, and so in, in the same way, me me metaphor being that, you know, if the whole world thinks that the locomotive is not going anywhere as a scam, it's like, okay, what happens as soon as the locomotive comes through town for the first time? It's like everyone immediately sells their horses. Even if the locomotive is, you know, a decade away from mass adoption or whatever, it's like just the basic game theory, the basic economic incentive here is to sell everything as fast as possible. So even if what we're talking about here sounds like it's far off, it's like it might be, but the market might price it in extremely soon because it's if it becomes obvious to a significant number of market participants, like the market's going to price it in. The market is efficient, even though it's not being efficient right now. So I just want to say that too. Here's a quick message from our sponsor. Being involved in Bitcoin means you value freedom, financial freedom, freedom to save, and freedom to spend. Privacy, digital security, and no internet tracking logs are critical in the information age today. NordVPN is my favorite VPN service. It's fast, secure, and offers 5,500 secure servers in 59 countries. You can connect to any one of them and enjoy your favorite content no matter where you are. They've also doubled down on keeping you safe with their new threat protection feature. Say goodbye to intrusive website ads and malware. Even if you download an infected file, threat protection kicks in and deletes it before it makes a mess of your computer. The best part about this sponsorship, there's literally no risk with their 30-day money-back guarantee. Give it a try, and if you like it, great. If you don't, they'll issue a refund, and you can pretend the entire situation never even happened. Check out our link, nordvpn.com slash blockware to get your subscription started today. Yeah, definitely. Um, can you dive a little bit further? Because like I said, like the idea of real estate is, is kind of very clear. I feel like you've explained that well. Can you dive a little bit further into the idea that, okay, maybe stocks or like index funds may not go up forever against something like Bitcoin? Can you explain that? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm much more, I mean, in my opinion, what do I know? But I'm much more worried about stocks than real estate. Um, real estate has monetary premium, sure. You know, whenever I take out mortgages or whenever, you know, we take out debt on real estate, you know, we give it a monetary premium, especially if you're in an urban area. Uh, however, you know, depending on your area, that's probably pretty low, maybe 20%, 40%, you know, something like that. Monetary premium of real estate. And for those that are listening don't understand what I mean by that, it means the value premium to that asset that people are using purely as a form of money. You know, most of the real estate investors I work with, it's like, they don't want the real estate for the wood and, and, and the land that it's on. They want it because it's basically a form of money to them. They, in, their, in their mind that's been living in the ancient world their entire life, they think that real estate is basically a form of storing value. You know, And so that's the monetary premium. It's that basically that additional value on top of the um, value of the house as a consumer good, the value of it as a form of money. And so, well, take stocks, you know, stocks are much less tangible uh, than real estate, <laughs> much less tangible. Um, you know, I mean, wh why, why do you think that margins, um, you know, wh why do you think that even though margins are going down has become a more and more tech heavy world, um, why do you think that, um, you know, valuations are going up? I mean, wh why are price to earnings ratios just going sky high? You know, every metric is saying the stock market's overvalued. Everyone, everyone's terrified of a stock market crash because it's so obviously overvalued. 
And yet, I'm not one of these bears that says, oh, the stock market's crashing. Well, it's going to crash in BTC terms, not USD terms. But um, anyway, what, what, is it, what happens to stocks? Well, I mean, look at the global stock markets, okay? You know, I know you know this, Joe. I'm just saying this for the average person. It's like, okay, think about this rationally. Any person in the world that saves money in stocks, okay, they go to America and then they go to big tech. That's where they go. And why is that? It's because money converges on one. You know, it, it's it's Gresham's law, it's Metcalf's law. You know, when, when all monetary premium t- t- tends towards one form of money, and right now that's the American stock market. Um, you know, I, I have many examples in my Twitter thread and other Twitter threads that are coming up later about how if you track the S&P 500, the Dow Jones, the NASDAQ, it doesn't matter. You track any index of an American stock market, it tracks perfectly with the money supply. You know, stocks have not gone up in value for 50 years. And people are like, oh, that's ridiculous. You're crazy. But it's like, okay, think about it. Stocks are not going up in value. They're keeping pace with the expansion of the currency supply of the United States, of of the world's global reserve currency. They're keeping pace. Their USD valuations are keeping pace. It's an open system. It's keeping pace with a more open system. And now why is it that it's getting more valuable and you feel you're getting richer? Well, it's because technology is making everything cheaper. You're you're keeping up. You're You're flat in stocks and technology is forcing prosperity's price down. So you feel that stocks are going up because the number is going up and, but that's not the case right now. You know, there's probably at least a 60, 70% monetary premium in stock markets. Um, I mean, you know, look at foreign stock markets and then look at global stock markets and then look at American stock market, you know, all this monetary premium, especially the last 10 years since the great financial crisis and, um, you know, the QE two, three, four, (laughs) um, you know, more and more monetary premium has just condensed towards the United States, because why would you invest in a foreign nation when you can just invest in the United States? I mean, you're taking the risk in the stock market anyways. Might as well preserve your purchasing power in a lower risk nation and jurisdiction. So anyway, what, what, what happens to stocks in the future? Well, I believe personally that the monetary premium of stocks is going to get completely sucked out in the relative near future here. You know, whether that's one year, unlikely, or a, a decade or two, probably more likely, um, you know, eventually stocks in real terms probably will go down 30, 60, 70%. Um, and then they will continue to go on forever against Bitcoin. Because why on earth would you hold a security, you know, of cash flows from a centralized company in a local jurisdiction, you know, that is centralized, can be shut down by, um, you know, a government when, as I said earlier, you can just buy a portion of the global monetary stock and be solidified in that for basically all future time. You know, and, and Technology also reinforces that too. As technology gets faster and faster, companies will last shorter and shorter. You know, the tech giants of today, they're all going to be gone in 30 years. That's probably pretty self-evident. You know, the the giants of 80 years ago or 100 years ago, they're all gone. And in the future, the rollover of the tech monopolies just gets faster and faster and faster. And the margins get squeezed tighter and tighter. And and therefore, the price-to-earnings ratios have to get squeezed tighter. So it's like a, a quadruple or quintuple whammy for stocks. It's just absolutely horrendous. It's like, okay... The long, the survival of companies is going to shrink. The margins are going to collapse. The, the monetary value is going to get shrunk. And people think this is a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. It's like, okay, everyone is worried about, oh, the stock markets go down. You know, you're crazy talking about Bitcoin. Why, why do you want everything to go down your doomsday? It's like, okay, we've become so detached from reality. It's like, okay, food prices coming down is a good thing. Okay, housing prices coming down is a good thing. Like, deflation is good. The whole idea that we want to become richer and richer. We want to see prices of all these 
you know, all, all this mixed basket of assets of stocks, you know, it's like, it, it makes no sense. And if you look backwards from the future that doesn't exist yet, you'll just see how nonsensical it is. It's like, why are we actively encouraging everything tangible to become more and more expensive? It's because, you know, well, we don't want to have a credit bust because that's painful and you don't get reelected. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating to think about the idea that like a diversified portfolio of the top equities in the U.S. could literally turn down forever denominated in Bitcoin. But it kind of makes sense. I mean, I, I think as markets get more, I'll let you talk in a second, but yeah. as markets get more efficient and, you know, all of a sudden you have 8 billion people being able to communicate over the Internet and challenge each other. And if someone's capturing profits, there's, you know, 8 billion other people that are also trying to capture those profits. And, you know, soon there's going to be AIs that are trying to capture those profits. Eventually, there's just going to be very little profits for everyone to, to capture. I mean, people are going to be capturing profits, but the margin on those profits is just going to be very small as the market is just going to get magnitudes more efficient. But yeah, what were you going to say? Oh, yeah, I was just going to interject to your point that they're going to go down forever. Like my point being that they're already going down forever. It's like, okay, take the S&P 500 in terms of Bitcoin. Take the Dow Jones in terms of Bitcoin. Take any, literally, any asset, consumer goods, security, or commodity on the face of the planet, denominate it in terms of Bitcoin. It's already going down. It's been going down for over a decade. So we're just at the beginning of the collapse of all these assets in terms of Bitcoin, and they're only going to continue to do so. You know, And so you know, I tell people, <laughs> I might get some flack for this, but I tell people that I believe the U.S. stock market will collapse at least 80% against Bitcoin within the next five years. You know, that sounds absurd to people. Oh, you're a fear monger and all this stuff. It's like, no, all Bitcoin has to do is go up to, you know, 100 grand. You know, since then, you know, we've gone from 15,000 to 23,000. So we're on the way. But, you know, it's like pe people don't think that way yet. And the, re the whole reason I encourage people to start thinking about Bitcoin is because as soon as that transition happens and you stop having your bias of viewing Bitcoin as a get rich quick scheme and you realize that it's it is an opportunity, but it's first and foremost a threat. It's like that changed your entire mindset. And, and I worry that in a matter of years, nations and billionaires and millionaires are going to realize that, that wait a second, this whole time, this has not been a risk on opportunity. It's a risk off opportunity. In the future world, the only low risk asset is the global monetary stock. Bitcoin is that of the future. And if you assume the future is going to exist, Bitcoin already, I know I get hate for this, but Bitcoin already, in a sense, is the world's lowest risk asset because there's nothing else to compete with it and it's the global monopoly of everything in the future and so so when you realize that then you realize okay i need a one percent allocation like right now just in case and then when you do that you suck energy out of an open system and put it into a closed system it's like throwing a planet in a black hole it's like all you've done is you made the black hole bigger and you make its inevitable absorption of everything only more likely so it's like okay wait me protecting myself and my own self-interest and allocating one percent to bitcoin all of a sudden, I just put the other 99% of my portfolio at a higher risk. It's like, okay, so then the only logical conclusion is that if my risk and the other 99% went up, my I, the only logical conclusion is to de-risk more, take more out and put it in Bitcoin. Well, it, then, it's a, then it's a feedback loop. you know. And, and that's for those listening, that's why you see so many people very quickly liquidate everything for Bitcoin. It's because as soon as this realization that I'm talking about kicks in, where you realize that the more you buy Bitcoin, the more absurd it is to not borrow my Bitcoin. It's just, anyway, it's it's terrifying game theory, and you might think it's absurd, but I, I just encourage you to, like, give it a 5% chance. If there's a 5%, 10% chance that this is right, it's like having a 0% allocation of Bitcoin is extremely high risk. So, anyway, I'm, I'm going on again. But, yeah, yeah just, to, just to add on to your point there. 
Yeah, no, I think that was well said. Fantastic point. Um, last question in the thread, the first thread that I think is, is sure. worth covering. You, you mentioned uh, comparing like the idea of like human jobs and horses, and it was also I think it was in that humans need not apply video potentially as well. Yes. Um, but yeah, like what 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 am I talking about here? Can you explain that to the audience? Definitely. Yeah. For those that don't know, CGP Gray, one of the best YouTubers out there, uh, made a video a few years back of humans not apply. It's a very good video. I think it's one of the best for the average person on the internet that explains it well. Probably a better one could be made. I hope he makes a updated one with new tech. Uh, but basically, the idea of the video is that, again, comparing horses, this time to human labor, though, um, is that, you know, for thousands of years, jobs for horses got more abundant and better and better and better. You know, from the ancient empires where, you know, if you were a horse, you were going to die by a spear or an arrow to some ancient um, empire. But as a function of time, the number of jobs for horses increased, and the life expectancy and the quality of life for horses increased up only for thousands of years until suddenly in the early 20th century the horse no longer became economically viable and what happened well we all know nobody uses horses anymore it's like completely laughable like it's literally ancient like my definition of ancient is not a period of time it's it doesn't have any connection to the real world in any fashion like to me the horse is already ancient even though it's just 100 years ago. You know, I mean, the population of horses per capita is down like 98%, you know, over the last 100 years. It's like, it's a complete collapse of the horse population. Um, you know, and, and the, the unfortunate truth here is that it's similar with humans, not the population collapse, but the, but the idea of being economically viable. It's like, you know, wages are going down. You know, that's why people don't like to hear everything's going down against Bitcoin. It's like, if Bitcoin's true, your wages are just going down forever. And so we think that's a bad thing. Like, oh, what do you mean I can't exchange more time for my political currency units? It's like, I, I'm sorry, but yeah, as we get more and more prosperity, it's like the way I put it, back to my metaphor of oxygen versus Mona Lisa, it's like, yeah, sure, everybody needs oxygen, but if all you have to sell are various forms of oxygen, it's like, how are you gonna make any money? Nobody's gonna buy it from you. You know, and so when I, when I show that uh, humans need not apply video to people, often the reaction they have is extremely negative. They, they become extremely uncertain about the future and this and that and the other. And there's a real transition cost here. I don't want to gloss over that, you know. I mean, to go, you know, the Industrial Revolution, you know, 90, 95% of people lost all their livelihoods. Yet their lifestyles are better for it because society improved and prosperity was cheaper. It's like it, the... Not to sound arrogant here, but, you know, your job is going to go away and you're going to be better for it. It's not me saying that. It's just the reality of technology that we are likely at the point or near the point where humans, in a similar way to horses, horses were physical brute force power. The locomotive replaced them. We're coming to the point now where we have humanoid robots on the, on the edge. We already see automation everywhere and software. You know, it's like all these applications are already happening. It's already getting harder and harder harder and harder for people to find jobs. And again, the irrational optimist to me, if our base case scenario is to assume that technology is only going to improve, only going to get faster, and only going to get more economically um, beneficial and prosperous for every human on earth, it's like the, the economic incentive collapses, you know, and you don't need jobs to go away 100%. You just need jobs to go away minor percentages. And, and the video really touches on this well, that, you know, um, even if you just have a robot or a piece of software that can, you know, replace 
a job to a certain extent, not even if it's better than humans. It just has to be more economically viable. You know, a, a robot doctor doesn't have to be better than the best doctor in the world. It just has to be better than the bottom 80%. And the brutal truth with the Pareto's distribution is that the vast majority of doctors are average or below average, you know, by definition. <laughs> so, you know, anyway, the, the, the long point being there is that I don't know what the future has, but up to this point, more and more technological progress has only resulted in more and more jobs for humanity and more and more prosperity. And my hunch, and I, and I, by the way, I used to think this was absurd. I used to think it was ridiculous. I thought there would only be more jobs in the future. But the more I look, um, I think the probability is getting lower and lower that we will have more jobs uh, for everyone or, or that we will have an increasing um, incomes for everyone. Real world wealth, real world prosperity will go up. But wages, I don't see a way at which wages can go up. I think wages only can go down in terms of the monetary supply. But in prosperity terms, they'll go up. So point being there is that what if that happens? I mean, I don't know. Will it happen? Perhaps, perhaps not. But I, I think that's important for people to realize is that if Bitcoin is what we think it is, there is an extremely high probability that your entire retirement portfolio, the money that you've used the entire life and your job are all going to be attacked simultaneously. And it's going to be extremely confusing and disorienting people. You know, it's the same thing as the Industrial Revolution. Your farm is going to become economically inviolable. You're going to lose your job. Your skills are going to, you know, not be in use anymore. And, you know, all of a sudden you're going to have to learn this whole new world. It's the same thing today, except we're doing it roughly five times faster. Yeah, I, I mean, it may sound crazy, but it's certainly a, a possibility. Um, I, I, th I think it makes sense. I've been saying similar things probably crazily on Twitter, but... It yes, you have, and I love it. Keep doing it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Um, before we wrap it up, you did post a new thread. I think it was today, um, which we'll try to get this podcast out pretty soon after today. But um, I'm sure people will go back and be able to see it. But generally speaking, kind of how early are, are we to Bitcoin at this point? Yeah, we're extremely early. People have no idea how early we are. However, I give that nuance. I think we're very early in terms of price. I think we're very early in terms of its global share of wealth. Um, you know, keep in mind, Bitcoin has maybe what, half a percent, 1% of global wealth? No, not even that. Probably more like one-tenth of a percent. Yeah, whatever it is, it's something ridiculously small. It's like, okay, what if global prosperity increases 10x over the next 50 years? It's like, okay, so Bitcoin's coming after stocks, bonds, real estate, cash, and all future prosperity. It's like all future tech S-curves that are only going up faster forever all are condensed onto the monetary layer of, so it's very early in terms of price. Um, as far as time, I, I'm not so sure. Um, the internet took what, 30 years to go from a niche corner in the world to global adoption, which by the way, we're not at global adoption yet. Roughly 40% of the world has not even used the internet yet. So people, people think, Oh, Bitcoin's not a threat until it's reached matches option. It's like, no, it'll be a threat far before then. Think about how much the internet's already changed your life and realize we're only at 60% adoption for the internet after 30 years. Okay. And then realize that somewhere between eight to 14,000 people every single day are joining the Bitcoin network. It's like, okay, it's growing 80% faster on a compound annualized growth rate versus the internet when it was the same size. It's like, okay, we're saying this thing has a similar degree of impact on society as the internet and it's growing 80% faster on an annualized basis, um, you know, depending on your model, a little more, a little less, but it's significantly faster. And we're already 14 years in. It's like, okay, that's really alarming. And, and on top of that, 
um, it's harder to transition out of the old system. You know, it, with, with the internet, one way to put the internet is it was the fastest explosion of a new communications network in human history. The other way to put it, the pessimistic way to put it, is that it was the fastest collapse of a paradigm in human history. You know, newspapers, radio, all these other former paradigms, they all collapsed faster than any paradigm before in history. Um, and unfortunately, I think it's going to be the same thing here, you know, and that's why I talk about it. I think we have a few years until things are going to really, um, really become difficult for the average person. I mean, people think, oh, they'll ban Bitcoin or whatever. It's like, no, they won't ban Bitcoin. They'll ban you from leaving to buy Bitcoin. You know, one metaphor I put it is that, you know, right now we're in the ancient world where we have all these open systems, 99 ships of open systems that are all sinking. They have different sized holes in their holes. You know, one ship like cash has a really big hole. And so it's sinking really quickly. Real estate in it, or stocks or gold or all these other things have smaller holes. And so they're sinking a little slower. And so we diversify in all these other ships, you know, and we think we're doing well because we're sinking slower than the other ships. Like, okay, boom. We now have a ship that's a closed system, the Mona Lisa and the world of oxygen, that's going to stay afloat forever. And everything else by relation has to continue sinking. It's like, okay, well, they'll ban that ship. They'll, they'll blah, 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 blah. It's like, no, no, no. They're not going to stop that ship from floating. They're going to stop you from abandoning the ship you're on when panic gets large enough. You know, it's like, they're not going to stop Bitcoin. They're going to stop you from selling your bonds. They're going to stop your bank account. They're, you know, and we already see this with central bank digital currencies or CBCs coming out and everything. You know, I mean, I, I, I am not in the business of making low time uh, preference predictions. I have no idea what's going to happen, but I think the long story short to answer your question of how early are we, I think we're extremely early as far as price and the prosperity of humanity. It's going to be a good thing. If Bitcoin can avert um, a couple of revolutions or wars, it's like, that's wonderful. I genuinely think Bitcoin's going to save tens of millions, perhaps even a hundred million lives over the next century alone. It's going to force uh, prosperity to become cheaper forever. It's going to be a wonderful thing for humanity. But as Henry Ford predicted all the way back in 1921, when this system comes, Bitcoin, as he described it, it's inevitable that it's going to result in revolution and bloodshed, not as a fault of the new system, but because the old system has to cannibalize itself. And we're already seeing that polarization is getting worse. People are more and more anxious than ever. And, and I think more or less, in terms of price, we're very early. And I recommend anyone listening look at my thread to just emphasize how early it is and how little it takes to lower your risk. Um, but as far as time, I think we're far later than people realize. And I think... That's because we're biased looking backwards and thinking the speed of change is going to continue and failing to realize it's only going to get faster. So anyway, in terms of price, we're early. In terms of time, I'm not sure. Yeah, very interesting points. I really like the uh, ship metaphor. That was that was interesting. And it makes a lot of sense. Um, last question, then we'll wrap it up. Can sure. you be too late to Bitcoin? No. No, that, that's that's the uh, that's another point I make in my new thread. I um, I want to make that very clear for people. It's like the design of Bitcoin is that it's never too late. It's it's a piece of software that's designed to prevent replications of itself. With, with you know, technically you can make it. I can make a new Bitcoin, but economically speaking, it's designed to be self-preserving. Um, you know, so it, it's it's designed to last forever, or at least as long as humans continue to survive, and as long as we have our current understanding of mathematics and civilization and computers. I mean. Maybe we'll figure out something better in a few hundred years, but uh, there's nothing on the horizon. It's like, what are we going to do beyond computers? Like, I don't know. <laughs> um, but any, anyway, it, it's designed to last more or less forever, at least on a human scale or human lifetime terms. Um, so is it too late? Well, no, not really. Um, I, I put it in my Twitter thread today, and I know this is going to sound really absurd to people, but it's like, okay, do the math. The average company in 100 years 
probably is going to have somewhere between 10 to 1,000 Bitcoin on their entire balance sheet. You know, I make no price predictions of Bitcoin in my newest thread, but it's like, okay, what if in 100 years, the average energy company is not burning coal and, you know, and fossil fuels and natural gas and using uh, nuclear uh, fusion? And you know, Okay, what if in the future, these energy companies are, you know, using solar panels in space or, or, or a Dyson, or a Dyson uh, swarm or mining asteroids. It's like we can't comprehend how much more energy the future we will use. Um, and so it's like, okay, it, it's, it's never too late. You know, in the future, the total supply of units in the global monetary stock has to go down forever. And likewise, if we're optimists, we assume that the technological prosperity of humanity only goes up forever. And so that spread only continues forever. And so Unfortunately, Joe, I think Bitcoin's going to be trading at 100 million US dollars per coin, and people will still be saying, it's a bubble, I don't get it, what is it doing, it's not real, tangible, blah, 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 I'm too late, whatever. And it's like, no, <laughs> no, it, the, the design is that it's never too late. However, the caveat being, it will be too late to exit cash and bonds and stocks. It will be a point where it's too late. You know, once they want to stop trading of, of U.S. treasuries or whatever to preserve market stability or whatever baloney they come up with, it's like, then it's too late for that. All that money is just gone. You know, I mean, already the Federal Reserve, since for, for almost three years now, Joe, since March of 2020, the Federal Reserve requirements have been 0% for lending institutions um, across the United States. It's like, if you have money in a bank account, not to be a fear monger, but it might already be gone <laughs> and we don't know. So is it too late to Bitcoin? Absolutely not. Um, it's designed to be early forever, um, but is it going to be too late to exit the ancient world into the new world? Yeah, of course, because eventually the ancient world's going to die. And if you don't exit in time, you're going to be stuck a farmer in, you know, a world of automobiles and planes and landing on the moon. So to the moon, I guess. <laughs> nice. Yeah, well said. Yeah, I mean, I think this is probably officially the most bullish episode we've ever recorded so <laughs> oh no <laughs> i've already got but my I fair share of haters yeah <laughs> i think it's a good thing um i i agree with a lot of what you said i think it's on a long time horizon you're probably right um which is fascinating to think even think that it's possible um but yeah totally totally great talking with you here do you have any closing thoughts or places you want to send the audience i know you they might want to follow you on twitter yeah, um, yeah. I, I guess follow me on Twitter. I guess uh, Luke Broyles, B R O Y L E S. I mean, I just started, so I'm sure I'm going to be doing lots of new things. I have lots of podcasts lined up, so I mean, I guess you can follow me there. Um, I mean, besides that, like you know, folks like Joe here. I mean, you're, you're great, Joe. <laughs> follow Joe too. Um, yeah, and lots of other uh, uh, bitcoins out there are, are very good. I, I guess my only parting thought is that I know this sounds absurd to people, but my encouragement you know, to make full circle of where we started this conversation is that, you know, when I heard other people I knew that were very smart talk like this or view Bitcoin in this lens, you know, that's where I had my aha moment. It's like, okay, either I'm wrong about them and they're an idiot or I'm wrong about Bitcoin and I'm an idiot. And either way, I'm, I'm an idiot already because I misjudged somebody or I misjudged the asset. And so it's like, I might as well figure out which it is. And I'm not certain about anything I've said in this show today, but I think there's a very high probability. And if there's just a 1% chance that I'm right, it's like, okay, that's a 1% chance all of your assets and your job are going away far sooner than you'd like to realize. So I, I would just encourage people, even if you think it's offensive, it, because it is inherently offensive to human brains, it's just, you know, get off zero, buy $20 worth of Bitcoin, just just, just do something 
something to protect yourself, something to protect your assets. And it's not about getting rich. It's about your kids, your grandkids, and yeah, in the future. You know, I'm not bullish in Bitcoin because I want to see myself get rich. Although that'd be nice. Um, it's far more important to me to see it succeed and avoid the war and, um, you know, basically create a system where um, the benefits of productivity can flow back towards the monetary stock of the world and directly um, benefit people in the third world. So anyway, that, that's that's how I ended my new thread today is that Bitcoin's not about getting rich. It's about um, helping your fellow man and your, the future um, generations. So yeah, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it.